Acts 28, starting at verse 13. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Petoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not had any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years... Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Lord and Father, help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, so we might know your salvation as revealed here by your spirit, by your prophet, by your apostle. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me ask you, what is it that you most desire 
That's rhetorical. What is it that you most desire? And please excuse me for asking what seems to be a pretty personal question. That which we desire, that which we long for, that which we hope for may seem to be a solely private matter. And for some things it is. Yet in many ways, our desire is actually on display each day. It's seen in what we do and what we give priority to, particularly if it affects others. The decisions we make about how we use our time, our energy, our money, they are all decisions which to varying degrees are open and visible to others around us. And they are shaped by the world, often. And the whole reason why we have reality television is to feed and cultivate, cultivate desires. We have building shows, food shows, relationship shows, lifestyle shows, travel shows, and there are more. And we have multiple versions of every one of those types of shows. And that's not even on cable. They all exist because they tap into particular desires which we collectively want and hope for. We wouldn't want watch them if it didn't tap into something that we desired. In fact, if you think about the seven deadly sins, I'm pretty sure you're going to find a reality show on each one. Well, this morning, we finish our time looking at the Acts of the Apostles. Thank you so much for letting me go through the end part of Acts with you. It's Jesus' desire that his apostles would take the good news about him to the world. Right at the very beginning of this book, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we are told his desire is that they go first to Jerusalem and then to Judea and then on to Samaria and beyond that to the ends of the earth to the ends of the world. The whole book of Acts has been an account of how the apostles have fulfilled their commission to spread the good news. Now, over the last month or two months, in the sermons that we've been doing here, we've focused on what has happened to the apostle Paul and how he's tried to fulfill his commission, which has led him to be arrested, imprisoned, uh, to repeated trials, Uh, to an eventful journey, including a shipwreck, before eventually arriving in Rome, as we've heard at the beginning of the Bible reading today. Rome being the capital of the Gentile world, as far away as you could go to the ends of the earth at that time. And there to await a hearing before Caesar. In those days, the dreaded Caesar Nero. The circumstances that have placed Paul, that Paul has faced have been varied, yet it's not changed his desire to preach the kingdom of God or to teach about his Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is much for us to learn. So would you come with me to Acts 28, verse 17, as we finish off this colossally amazing book and think what it has to teach us today. What we have before us here is Paul's final two defense speeches. 
Paul's in Rome under house arrest and he has his pattern. He goes first to the Jews, or more appropriately, more correctly, they come to him. And when they've assembled, Paul addresses them. Acts chapter 28, verse 17, um, he, he says, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and they wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound in this chain. Now, his quick account aims to reassure the Jewish leaders that Paul's not against them. He's not against their Jewish customs. They are his customs as well. Yet he is a man awaiting trial before Caesar. And we know that Caesar is not particularly fond of religion. He's not particularly fond of any type of religion unless it's the Roman religion. And that means he's not particularly fond of Judaism. And so Paul makes clear that he's not in Rome to cause further trouble for the Jews. He's not bringing any charge against them, which you have to say, given, given what we have heard in Acts and how the Jews have treated him, that's a pretty gracious reply, really. Paul explains it's because of the hope of Israel that he is bound in this chain. Now, because we've been reading our Bible, we know what that hope is. We know from the chapters leading up to this what Paul's hope is because he's told us over and over again, hasn't he? He told, he told us it's, it's his hope in the resurrection. The hope that Jesus, once dead, now alive, means that when we die, we also can be alive if we are in him. That's his hope. He said that to the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. He said that to Governor Felix, uh, uh, Felix in chapter 24. And he said that to King Agrippa in chapter 26. And it was quite clear that in chapter 25... Festus knew that that was the reason why Paul was on trial. And so everything that we've seen in the last few weeks, in everything that's happened to Paul over the last two and a bit years, have been driven by his hope in the resurrection to come. Paul's desire to preach the kingdom of God and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ by highlighting the resurrection, it's not changed. His circumstances may have changed, as hard as they have been, it's not changed his desire. Now, without making too big a point of it at this point, have you noticed how often it is that we cite our life circumstances as the reasons why we drift in faith? I'm speaking now to those who know, who would claim a faith in Jesus. If you're like me, maybe you're not. But often it is, the, it is 
the trials of the life circumstances that I'm under that I'll often put down to be the reason why I just haven't been able to commit as much to the faith that I might be exercising in whatever setting that might be. With Paul, his circumstances have certainly hampered his movements, but it has not hampered his desire to speak about Jesus. Well, surprisingly, the Jewish leaders reveal that they've heard nothing bad about Paul. But they are intrigued by his message. And so they arrange to meet up again. And this time, an even larger group of people come uh, and uh, turn up into his house. Verse 23. From morning until evening, Paul explains and declared to them about the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from their scriptures. Now, you can see the result that comes as a result of this long day of teaching and preaching. Some are convinced and others are not. Some refuse to believe. Now, if you've had the opportunity to talk to others about your faith in Jesus, which I hope you have, then I suspect that Paul's experience here may resonate with you. Despite your best efforts, some will not believe. Now, why is that? It's a pretty good message. It's pretty fantastic. The world has nothing to add to it that that gives you an answer to what happens after death, really. It's a pretty good message. The cost was to somebody else, not to me, but the benefit is to me and not to him. You know, it's, it's a good message. Why is it that more people just don't, believe well Paul gives you the answer as his hearers begin to leave they get up and start filing out with whatever distress that might be in their faces he offers his final statement you can see it in verse 25 and following he said the Holy Spirit spoke truth to your forefathers when he said through the prophet Isaiah you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but you won't be perceiving. For your heart has been calloused. You hardly hear with your ears and you've closed your eyes. Now, does that passage sound familiar to you? You heard it before anywhere? Yes, you know your Bible so well, you know that's Isaiah 6. It's probably not where you were planning to go, but there you go. Isaiah 6. Um, uh, We know in the Old Testament um, that this is quoted from that. I mean, he tells you that the prophet Isaiah has said that. It's Isaiah's commissioning. When he's told to go to the people, to warn them that when they ignore God, it will bring judgment down upon themselves. Or perhaps that's not where that passage sounds familiar to you from. Perhaps it's familiar to you because you remember Jesus saying it in the parable of the sower, recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke, who also wrote this letter. 
Let's push down a little bit on this one. If you're happy to go with me, is it too cold to do that? Are you happy to go with me on this one this morning? Yep, all right. Let's push down a little bit and see if we can understand a little bit about the nature of unbelief. That's what we have to deal with all around us. Let's see if we can see, understand a little bit more about the nature of unbelief. Notice, as Paul explains it, that the Holy Spirit spoke. That's a pretty good start. Notice that he spoke through the prophet... Old Testament prophet, long time ago to say this is what's going to happen. That's a pretty, pretty good follow up. And notice that the words of the prophet are repeated by both Jesus and Paul. You can't get much more credibility than that behind a message. And yet some remain in unbelief. Why is it that people don't understand and turn to God? There seems to be two mutually exclusive answers to this question. They don't believe because it's the judgment of God upon that person. That's what Isaiah's statement is all about. You're not going to see, you're not going to hear, if you're not going to perceive in your heart, you're going to be judged. You're not going to believe. But on the other hand, equally, if you don't believe, it's because you're being obstinate. It's difficult to reconcile these two perspectives, yet both can be held equally true. And the Bible does that a lot. There are times within God's economy when two seemingly exclusive truths can be upheld. Saved by faith, yet called to do work. Those who don't work, how do they experience, how do, they, how do you see their faith? Two mutually exclusive ideas that work together. Chosen by God, yet humanly responsible. If chosen by God, then why am I still responsible? Death experienced in order for life to be received. If we didn't have death, we can't have life. And there are plenty more of those types of contradictions, seeming exclusive claims that can't work together as you move through the Bible. When it comes to unbelief, the tension is that folk can close their ears, their eyes, their hearts to what God has done for them in Jesus. And yet in doing that, it is equally an indication that God's judgment is upon them. Now, that may remove some of the pressure you feel when you do speak about Jesus to unbelieving friends. Our commission, our responsibility is to be a witness. How our friends respond is not under our control. That is a matter both for God and for the individual in question. And friends, as a suggestion for next time you are in a gospel conversation, my suggestion is follow Paul's example here. Don't lead by telling them that they will be judged. Spend a long amount of time, morning to evening if you will, 
explaining to them about Jesus Christ. (laughs) And maybe talk about the kingdom of God and the benefits about what Jesus has done for them before pulling this out as your final claim. Well, Paul closes his address in verse 28 by explaining that it was because the Jews deliberately rejected the gospel that he then turned to the Gentiles and they listened. Now, I really like that idea in the way that Isaiah highlights it. That hearing, seeing, hearing and allowing your heart to be affected is all necessary for someone to turn to faith. Unless they do that, they will see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn. And at that, God heals them. And the Gentiles here are the ones who understand God's salvation as Paul takes them the word of God. Now look at verse 28 one last time. I want you to know that God's salvation has been... Do you notice the word that's there? God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. The good news of Jesus didn't just filter down. It wasn't just sort of something they stumbled across. The good news of Jesus was deliberately sent by virtue of the apostles like Paul who went to reach the Gentiles. Acts closes telling us nothing about what eventually happened to Paul or what the outcome of the trial before Caesar was or even if the trial happened. No idea. But what we are left with is a picture of what Paul's ongoing desire was. For two more years, it says... He boldly and without hindrance preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a fantastic way to finish the Acts of the Apostles because in many ways it sums up what we have seen happening over and over and over and over again the whole way through the letter. And so as I close this series, may I suggest that we allow acts to shape our desires. That we allow acts to shape our godly desires. And on the incredibly detailed outline I've given you for this talk, you'll see there's space there to write three things. Three ways to allow acts to shape us in our godly desires. First, attitude. Attitude. 
Paul was imprisoned or under house arrest for the best part of five years in the latter part of Acts. And despite the restricted circumstances, his attitude remained gospel-focused. He made the most of the circumstances he had to live out his faith. And, you know, it would have been during the period of, this period of incarceration that Paul wrote his prison letters, the ones to, to, to Ephesus and to Philippi and to Colossae that we have to read for ourselves today. And when you read those letters, there's not even a hint of frustration in them. This is Paul writing in this circumstance, being restricted as he has been, and yet those letters there for us to read don't give us even the vaguest idea that he was frustrated by his circumstances. His attitude was simply to make the most of whatever situation he was in to declare the gospel. I'm challenged by that. I don't know about you. I'm challenged by that. Being a Christian, it should not be something that I do on Sundays or when I feel like I've got my life together or I'm sort of at that point where, all right, well, I've now got some more room to exercise my faith. That, that's not what you see here. Being Christian should be infused into every part of my existence such that my attitude towards everything should be shaped by my faith in Christ. I think that's what you see in Paul. So attitude. Second, articulation. Articulation is clearly on display throughout Acts and in the speeches of Paul that we've looked at. He was eager to articulate his faith, to preach the kingdom of God, to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ and about his resurrection and to make the most of the opportunities he had before him. I'm challenged by that too. I'm challenged by that because as I consider the different theatres of my life, I realise that in many of them, I don't make the most of the opportunities there is to articulate my faith. And I look here at Paul and we are told that he boldly articulated his faith. So should we. Attitude, articulation, activity. The final take-home message I think you've got as you move through Acts is, uh, is activity. Although so much has happened to Paul, so much that appears to mean that, that, that he could be out of control, it's clear that Paul was very intentional with what he does. He listened to what Jesus asked of him. And he followed. He sought out opportunities to speak first to the Jews. And then if that didn't work, he went to the Gentiles. He used the time he had before him to help others and did that in a way so that he could speak further about Jesus. Sometimes one-to-one, sometimes in the small group, whether that might be in the jail cell, sometimes in the house where he had other brothers come to visit him, sometimes on the island or on the ship, and sometimes in big public settings, wherever that might have been, as he stood between, before royalty, commoner, and Jewish leader. His activity shaped his faith. No, that's not right. 
His activity was shaped by his faith. And again, I'm challenged. I was in a conversation this week about what to do. uh, The conversation was about what we do with our social life. And I realised that when I thought of my social life, what little of it there is, I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old extrovert. What little of my social life there is, I think about it in a very me-centred way. Time for me to relax. Time for me to read a book. Time for me to be refreshed. Time for me to do what I want to do. That's not very social, is it? In Paul, we see someone whose activity without hindrance was shaped around his faith and that he was very intentional in using the time he had for the sake of the gospel. So friends, as I finish up, may I ask you this question? How does the gospel shape your desires? How does the gospel shape your desires? Is there anything you need to change about your attitude, your articulation, your activity, so that you continue in the commission that your Lord has given you for his glory? Lord and Father, We thank you that you give us an insight into how Paul thinks, in fact, in how Jesus calls his disciples to think and act. Father, we thank you that at the end of Acts, we see Paul doing exactly what he and others, including us, have been asked to do, boldly, without hindrance, preach the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we so need your help in doing that. Shape our attitudes, shape the way we speak, our articulation, shape our activities so that in all things our faith will be on display and will be on display for the benefit of others. And we pray this for your sake, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.